Cities have been going through a bit of a rough time in the last couple of years. With the shifting nature of work, downtowns in many places are emptying out, which is leading to business closures and fears about a transit death spiral, which doesn't sound scary at all. At the same time, it is becoming very difficult to find affordable housing in many cities. With all of this going on, is it possible to save the city? Or more optimistically, is it time for bold thinking to transform our cities so they are greener and more inclusive than they were before? More than half of the world and 80% of Canadians live in cities, so this is an important question. Hello and welcome to Pullback, where we explore big new ideas and ask, is this a real solution or a distraction? Pullback is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network of Progressive Canadian Podcasts. I'm Kristen Pugh, and I'm here with my co-host, Kyla Hewson. On today's episode, we talk to Patrick Esmond White, host of Canada Reimagined, a podcast that explores futuristic and utopian solutions to Canadian issues, including poverty and climate change. Patrick has worked in a variety of industries, including federal and municipal levels of government, oil, journalism, and broadcast radio. Kristen was kind enough to indulge my interest in talking about cities because I love them so much, and it's where we all live. Except for my grandma. Sorry, grandma. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and Patrick has been a city councillor as well. So he has, in addition to sort of having a real breadth of experience across his career, has very city-specific experience. So it was good to talk to you about this uh, topic. And it's always fun to host a fellow podcaster from the Harbinger Media Network. It's a little bit more relaxed, a little bit more conversational, and we get more Kristen energy (laughs) and Kyla energy. (laughs) Kennergy. No, wait, that's taken. (laughs) Patrick is really good at breaking down the difficulties facing municipal governments on the planning and building of great cities. There is a surprising lack of power over local decision making at the municipal level. Patrick brought us back to the Constitution as a problem, which in Canada is, for those listeners that are not from Canada, the Constitution is always an issue because federalism The way that federal powers are sort of dispersed is not always ideal to solving challenges today. We, more than most other countries in the world, do devolve a lot of power to the provinces. So usually the conversation is sort of like how you can shift that balance so that the federal government can do more things. But in this case, it was sort of interesting because the problem that Patrick was really pointing to throughout the episode is that municipalities are what's called creatures of the province. Um, And so they really provinces can sort of decide to do whatever they want with them. So that's a big area of debate, not only here, but around the world, cities don't have enough power. But one of the challenges in the Canadian context is that everybody is terrified of opening the constitution because it went very badly last time we tried. Um, And in the past, even when it's worked, it has caused like national crises that also almost have sort of led Quebec to leave the country. So, ah, (laughs) what do you do? Patrick actually has a really interesting episode over on his channel about what it would look like for Quebec to leave Canada, and it's bite-sized, which I'm a fan of, so everyone should go check that out. I really liked it. But I find something that cities really struggle to do, well, I mean, this is true for anyone who's ever tried to start a following online, it's hard to get people to do things. Subscribe to our Patreon. (laughs) (laughs) I joined a presentation given by a a municipal employee talking about how we really need to get better at creating communities of care, especially as heat waves, storms, and like other natural disasters become more and more a part of like regular life. Your neighbors could check on you to make sure you're okay, or people can get groceries for each other, or 
we have more community gardens or I mean, I don't even know any of the names of the people I share an apartment building with. It's just like not part of the culture in a lot of places around Canada. And we're all isolated and it makes reacting to disasters much more difficult and it makes planning for the future much more difficult. Definitely. We should do an episode sometime on tactical urbanism because we didn't really get into this in this conversation. But but yeah, building cities in, you know, living what you want to see a city to be like and sometimes being a little bit sort of, you know, you you do a thing and you ask for permission from the city later. It's an interesting strategy that is increasingly being deployed around the world. Ooh, yeah, we should. My mom <laughs> literally is like, oh, I'm going to take some paint out and just fix the lines on this road that are bothering me. And I'm like, ma'am, <laughs> that's tactical urbanism. <laughs> I actually recorded this episode in Edmonton and I flew Flare Air and they only allow seven pounds for carry-on for like their cheapest flight, you know, pricing. So I didn't pack my microphone. So I'm sorry. Okay. I don't sound as crisp. Please forgive <laughs> me. Uh, I hope that this episode holds up in every other way. And when it inevitably does, then, you know, feel free to head on over to Patreon and show us some love over there. Shout out to all the people who are already signed up. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you. And we will be publishing some stuff over there Shortly, uh, I think the person who recommended Ishmael to us <laughs> already signed up as well. So now we're really committed. So that'll be one of the first ones that we do, I promise. <laughs> and without further ado, please enjoy this episode. Patrick and Kristen, uh, since we're this is going to be more of conversational, I think, uh, in your opinions, what defines a great city? Oh, a great city is where the economy is thriving and people want to be there, quite simply. If you go back over history, I mean, cities have always been where civilization starts. The word city, civilization, civics, uh, they're all connected. And it's where the economy would come together, political would come together, security would come together. It always had an economic base, whether it was from agriculture or from uh, trade or for some other reason. And, and that pertains today, too. And every city we have, the major Canadian cities, are all the pumping heart of a local economy. So Vancouver draws from British Columbia. Toronto draws from the rest of Ontario. That's what makes great cities. But great cities have to be properly planned so that you have the infrastructure in place and you have politics in place. You have to have the culture and intellectual capacities. It's, it's an exciting place to be. And cities are exciting. Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of like I've been to a ton of cities globally and every city is different, but all of the good ones, like they just feel right. Like there's just like a, even if like the, the things that are driving the economy in that city are totally different from like, like their neighbors, there's something about, I just love cities. So I'm, I'm a big fan of just like the idea of like, what makes something good, you know? <laughs> Another thing is, well, I love living in the country too. I actually live in a suburb right now, but we have a global population right now of about just past 8 billion, and it's expected to peak at 10 billion at the end of this century before leveling off. The rise in population is mostly in Africa and in some parts of the developing world, while the population is stabling, even declining in a lot of other countries. But where are these 2 billion people going to live? You can't put them in the country. It's already stressed trying to be able to feed people. 
Uh, we have climate change, which is destroying natural environments at an incredible pace. We need cities, and we need cities around the world that can house billions of people. And in Canada, they're projecting that our population could go from the current 39 million up to easily double. It's going up 500,000 a year. We already have a housing shortage in these big cities and nowhere for the poor people to go. So we're looking ahead at we need to build massive, massive cities in Canada. They have to be green and it's hard to add to the infrastructure of our existing cities and just kind of upgrade a little around the edges. That's just not enough. And so my prediction is that the coming few decades is going to be an incredible time for building of cities, big cities. Just on that, the point about the growing global population and immigration in Canada, I think one of the big problems with city planning here is that we really don't put together our planning for building housing, our planning for building transportation and other kinds of infrastructure with our plans for immigration. Those are like three policy silos that don't talk to each other nearly enough. And you see that in, in Toronto in pretty substantial ways where you've got sort of like the settlement services are in the wrong part of the city for people to easily connect by transit that are in a different part of the city. And like the most transit accessible neighborhoods are not the neighborhoods where there's the cheapest housing in a lot of cases. So like, for me, that is sort of like a big, a big area that we're going to need to address when we're planning for these larger cities, because Canada is an urbanizing country like many others. Well, the Chinese, since their revolution, have built approximately 600 new cities from scratch. Uh, they're currently building some other mega cities that are promising to be totally green and self-sustaining. If you look at what's happened in the Middle East, they've been doing the same thing. There's a new one in Saudi Arabia being designed and built called The Line that's going to be 160 kilometers long and a couple of hundred meters wide and is going to be completely self-sufficient, sustainable, green I mean, they are planning for the future and building cities for the future, whereas we're tinkering around the edges. And we have the problem of three levels of government that can't coordinate a darn thing. Yeah, it is really frustrating. Like the, the housing crisis in this country, you look at <laughs> countries like Japan that have much more affordable housing and much, much, much less land. <laughs> like there's, there's no reason for housing crisis in Canada. <laughs> Well, weirdly, one of the things that I read in Tokyo is that they basically don't care about uh, the kind of restrictions that we have of how many parking spots, how many parks, how much green space. They let the developers meet the market. And if you want to get to a park, don't expect it in your neighborhood. You better hop on a train. It's affordable housing as a result, but it's a way of planning by not planning in a sense. Yeah, although I think that probably does rely on having better transit infrastructure. Yes. In Canada, it's a huge it's a huge problem for for people who don't have access to a car. Like other than Toronto and Vancouver and and Montreal. Like if you don't have a car, it's very difficult to get around in a Canadian city. Yes. Totally. You guys are making some excellent points when it comes to like build like tinkering around the edges is such a like a great explanation for what cities in Canada are currently doing. I think I'm in Sherwood Park right now visiting my family and uh, they've just approved like they're building a whole new city essentially just like to the north of Sherwood Park. It's like a plan 
that Sherwood Park is working on because they're just trying to do a housing thing. But it's not to the same scale as like some of these other projects, obviously. But also like they're building on some of the best farmland in the country. So they're urbanizing that. And then you also have like, uh, I mean, Saudi Arabia is a great example of just like what happens when you don't consult with local indigenous populations before ousting people to build new. So like there's a lot of it's tricky, but like Canada has so much space. And like if we were to work with our indigenous neighbors, it wouldn't, I don't think, be so hard to to plan for something. But I guess it's maybe because everybody's so siloed, like Kristen said. I remember living in Vancouver, and this is now 50 years ago, and watching as they were paving over some of the finest farmland in the country. And it's really disheartening, especially when they're building suburban style housing. But uh, density, it's a, I gather there is a new movement of Yimby. Yes, in my backyard, because that's the only way you can get it affordable. And it's trying to take over from the NIMBY movement. And there's a cities are creatures of the province by law. And the province can do whatever it wants. So you end up having someone like Doug Ford come into Ontario and decide, you know, too many councillors in Toronto, cut them. Does Toronto have a say? No. They uh, decide, we need more housing. Let's open up some land. And they open up some greenbelt land. And then it turns out that it was all a little bit crooked and corrupt and they've had to backtrack. (laughs) But cities have no standing in the Constitution. They have no strong tax base. It means that it's impossible for them to do long-term planning. And you end up with situations. Now, when I was a municipal councillor in a small town close to Ottawa, we were building a new municipal center with offices and rinks and theaters and things like that. It was delayed by months because we had to get a provincial minister and a federal minister both come and cut the ribbon and claim credit. They were different political parties, which made it awkward. Those months meant the cost went up by hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it's just stupid. That kind of thing happens all the time. You can't plan urban transit. You can't plan anything when you have no constitutional standing and no strong tax base. Yeah, I mean, Toronto's been experiencing this with some of their transit projects. They'll plan for like 10 years and then a new government comes in and they scrap it and they've got to start from scratch. So definitely, <laughs> definitely a thing that people have experienced, I'm sure. <laughs> There's a, an old theory called Georgism, almost unheard of. Uh, it was popular about 120 years ago. And it basically says that the local tax base should be built not on the value of the property, but the value of the land underneath. And so if someone is sitting on valuable land and not developing it, they'll pay the same tax rate as someone who's right next door who's got a skyscraper. And that forces development. It also totally changes the way in which the tax base works. Detroit is trying to do something similar right now, but it's running into that same problem because their state legislation won't allow them to do what they want to do. And they're trying to renovate a city that has gone into blight. So what do you think about like a lot of times people will talk about like city charters as a potential solution to this? Um, Do you think like giving cities more power through something like that would help? I could imagine it would be uh, a piece of paper. I can't see that it would be much more unless they have both constitutional and legal standing and the province can't turn around and say, you know, that was yesterday, this is now. Yeah. I mean, that's a challenge, though. Like, 
opening the Constitution is something it feels like politicians of all levels are very squeamish about. <laughs> it hasn't gone well in the past. <laughs> yeah, because they all remember the Quebec stuff. Yeah. So it's like, given that, is there anything we can do short of opening the Constitution and giving cities power? <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, there are things you could do, but you'll only be nibbling around the edges. Canadian mining industry has been in decline for a number of years. The number of mines, the amount of work. Why? A bunch of reasons. We have a, these pesky environmental regulations. We have these pesky indigenous people. You know, a bunch of things that make some of the mining companies that uh, may or may not have a social conscience, some of them will just stay away. If we wanted to have green mining in Canada, which would require a bunch of changes in robotics and uh, probably small modular nuclear reactors to power electric mines. There's, there's ways that that can happen. And there's a bunch of mining companies working on exactly this kind of thing. And if indigenous people welcomed them and helped set the rules, then yes, you could have a massive new start to the mining industry in Canada, and you'd almost have to build cities to accommodate that. Whether you'd build around the existing cities, the Sudbury's, the Sault Ste. Marie's, places like that, or whether you start building from scratch, all of a sudden you have a critical mass of industry that needs a place and can't afford the land values in a place like Toronto or Hamilton. So, you know, there's inventiveness. It takes boldness. I don't see that out of any of our political parties, and that's part of my complaint. I think a lack of boldness is something that a lot of people can really agree on at all levels. Like, it, it's almost like uh, nobody's ready to try and talk about big action plans. It's all just kind of, I don't know, it's a lot of lip service. Let's give somebody a tax credit. That's yeah. that's every every level of government these days. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we all know that tax credits only help people who have enough money to pay taxes. They don't help the poor. Yeah. Yeah. It's really hard to retrofit a city to be green. Can you improve the efficiency of your heating systems? Can you strengthen the electrical grid? Can you uh, make buildings greener somehow, that costs a lot of money. It's not an, an easy thing to do. And it takes a lot of workers who are skilled, and we just don't have enough workers. And so it's kind of chicken and egg. We need all those immigrant workers who can do some of these jobs, and yet we have no places for them to live. It's a, it's a real dilemma that Canada faces. And that's where the lack of boldness is going to come back and bite us. Yeah. I mean, and it's not just a, a problem that's limited to immigrant workers either. You've hit on a really important problem, I think. And like anecdotally, uh, Kyla and I were out in BC and they're having like a big problem hiring ferry workers there. Um, and part of the problem is the unaffordability of housing. So like, I, I think you're you're really right to point on this this challenge that like, how do you find people to work the jobs that you need to make a city work when people can't afford to live in the city anymore. You even have that with um, something like the military. You know, the military is looking for thousands of recruits. They can't fill all the jobs that they have. And part of it is the cost of housing. Uh, they don't necessarily want to live in the, uh, on the bases way out in the boondocks. If they come back to headquarters anywhere, they simply can't afford the housing. And when you're moving house uh, that often, it becomes very expensive. It's affecting so many aspects of our economy. 
The military is a really interesting one because right now they're the only people we have to react to disasters that are climate related, which is a whole other thing that maybe we should like. That's a different episode. It is. (laughs) But it is like a a huge problem because like not only do you not have the workers to help like green the grid or, you know, update our cities, but you also don't have the people who are reacting to the fires and the floods that we need. Right. And the military does not want the job. They're already stressed. Personally, I advocate uh, for a climate core. It's in one of my podcasts that's coming up in the next week or so. But, you know, we it's time to have a dedicated climate core that can get out and deal with emergencies all across the country and even around the world because it would be part of what we contribute to global security. In this case, the security threat being climate. But that's another story. It's not an urban story. If you're in an urban area and you start losing your electrical grid, you get a real problem. We had derechos and tornadoes in my neighborhood recently, and we'd lose power for a couple of weeks. I was caught in an ice storm, uh, lost power for three weeks. We had (laughs) the military came in after the ice storm, and they had a wonderful time. They went camping in the snow and protected the the electrical lines and the the telephone lines because people were coming in and... uh, stealing the generators that were powering the phone lines. It was, a, it was a hilarious situation. They were all hiding out in snowbanks and having fun. That hits on a really good point, too, of like, as disasters become like more commonplace and not even like, you know, not even capital D disasters, just little disasters like, well, I don't even know if you can call heat waves little disasters anymore because like, what was it, two years ago, at least 600 people in BC died from a heat wave and like Lytton burst into flames like it's wild and so like as climate change worsens and cities become hotter i i mean i have a whole section here that like we could talk about when it comes to like you know urban heat islands and the sort of planning that cities need to be able to do to as you've already pointed out like retrofitting is really hard like all of our cities are made of asphalt and concrete when you still have cars on the road they're emitting their own heat as well as you know the exhaust that comes out and so like buildings leaking energy The idea of like the urban heat island being a problem and the idea that we can't retrofit it at the scale that we need while housing is so unaffordable, like, oh my goodness, like, what do we do? (laughs) Well, I mean, I think with urban heat islands, it's not necessarily always simple, but one of the easiest solutions that can be applied in that context is just greening the neighborhood. Adding more trees and other forms of vegetation really cools those areas down. So there are other retrofits that are very complicated for sure, but we could start small. Yeah. <laughs> Save some lives. Yeah, just plant some trees. <laughs> Fewer lawns, more trees. Yeah. <laughs> less manicuring and more nature. Rooftops are an incredible underused resource. And uh, there's a lot of work going on in the States and other places using paints that are, instead of uh, absorbing the heat that reflect and that can help cool a city and cool a building, uh, there's some really interesting stuff going on. If Canada has a problem with heat islands in the city in the summer, imagine what it's like down in the southern states or throughout the part of the world where most people live. Ah, it's horrible. Yeah, well, and like, especially in the United States, they have a parking lot problem where like, they're like so much urban space. And I mean, this is true, even in cities like, especially like Edmonton, which is where I'm hanging out right now. And the the parking lots, the parking lots, there's so many parking lots. (laughs) 
put some trees in, cover some skyscrapers in ivy. You know, I some other things that I was reading, I read like a whole really cool article about like all of the different ways that we could like uh, update cities to be a little bit more heat friendly and like opening up the base of towers to create breeze pass throughs. Uh, in, like, you know, make uh, we talked about public transit, but that gets cars off the road, which reduces the heat in cities just from like the amount of things that are running at a given time. Yeah. And then you could convert more roads to green space. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, in the Middle East, they're rediscovering how uh, centuries ago they knew how to design buildings that would catch the wind and create a little breeze and drop the temperature inside a house significantly without using any energy whatsoever. And they're rediscovering that kind of thing and reapplying it. It's, it's cool. Yeah, definitely. No pun intended. There's also, there's a really good book that came out this year called The Heat Will Kill You First um, that I would recommend to any listeners that want to. And one of the things, they're talking about all kinds of ways you have to adapt to heat waves. Um, and one of the things they discuss in the book is is that point that, that you were making that we've sort of lost the focus on building buildings that can sort of cool naturally. And so we're really reliant on these like energy intensive systems like air conditioning and even like heat pumps, they still use a fair amount of energy, even though they're more efficient. So if we prioritize building for cooling or for like insulation in general um, and the ability to like have cross breeze, it's like, I don't know. I don't know um, how many listeners out there live in like big apartment boxes, but they're not designed to have any kind of airflow. So you cannot get a cross breeze going in most apartment buildings. And that is one of the reasons that people are dying in heat waves in Canada. That's a preventable problem. Yeah. If we have to build massive cities because of massive populations, then that kind of thing is going to be a continuing problem. It has to be designed by the architects to be able to solve it. It's an, it, it requires energy. It just requires green energy. Air conditioning is not necessarily bad if you have a green source of energy to power it. Yeah, yeah. And I think we need to make them as efficient as we can because, you know, you can't just have infinite energy use, but but it's a life-saving thing. There have been a few stories this year about like, oh, is it bad to be pushing for air conditioning? No, <laughs> this is a life-saving thing. People without access to air conditioning are dying. That is not the climate fight we should be picking. But as you say, we need to green our grids and we need to find more efficient ways to do it. I look at that and personally, I am a supporter of the theory of small modular nuclear reactors, but I see it as a bridge to the future because there are going to be energy sources in the future that will solve the problem. We can then get rid of those modular reactors. I've been reading more about natural hydrogen and how in many of the gas wells, they ignored the fact that there was some other gas coming up that they just wanted the gas and it was hydrogen. And if they were able to separate that hydrogen out and use it in a productive way that we now know how to use hydrogen, there are places, one in Mali, where there was this hole in the ground where there was a wind coming out of the ground and people thought this is wild. And this is decades, decades ago. Someone went and uh, went near it with a torch to see if they could see down what was down the hole and it lit the thing up like a butane lighter. It's this huge, incredible blue flame that can be seen at night for miles around. And 
What was it? Hydrogen being produced naturally, permanently underground. And if we look for it, we will start to find it. And they're now starting to look around for this all over the place. But the infrastructure to capture that hydrogen and make use of it, distribute it, is, is not there yet. But by the end of this century, it'll be used. Man, I love the idea of like, uh, you talk about this on your podcast uh, briefly, and we talked about it in our pre-chat, but the uh, the airships that we could have instead of the the long-haul trucking company, like just uh, get get pack up your airships and uh, transport goods and services that way. <laughs> Do we really need airships, though? Can't we just build trains? Like <laughs> Trains tr- take land. Yeah, but we got tons of land. <laughs> The idea of airships, the Germans had airships for about three decades with very, very few accidents. And we have the technology to make hydrogen lift airships quite safe. And the only reason we don't is because of old thinking and old fears. But we could take a lot of trucks and trains off the roads and off the rails and transport stuff robotically in hydrogen airships. And that would relieve a lot of pressure on the uh, the transportation grids around cities, which is one of the biggest problems. Uh, transportation grids, you know what it's like to get caught in rush hour traffic. It's just miserable. I hate it. I don't know. I think like maybe airships are part of the solution. But to my mind, sort of like the top priority is really like dealing with the transit death spiral that a lot of cities are in. Like I live in Ottawa, which should be the easiest city in the country to design a transit system around because you've got everybody going to the same 10 office buildings to work because everybody works for the government. Not everybody, but a large portion of people. Um, And still, very few people here use public transit to get to work because it is so unreliable. It is so expensive. And you can just, if we're going in one or two days a week, I know people who book an Uber to go (laughs) into the office. That to me is a sign of a failing city. No argument on that. I live here too. (laughs) But it's another example of somewhere where uh, Ottawa's not Canada's favorite city to spend money. No government wants to be pumping money into Ottawa. And we have, as for transit, we have the federal government, we have the provincial government, we have the city, we have the National Capital Commission, which owns land. We then have to go across the river to Gatineau and deal with different levels of of administration there. It's impossible to get agreement on anything as simple as transit. And uh, then when we do, we get the lowest possible price because that's what Canadians expect out of Ottawa. And so it doesn't work. No surprise. I can imagine if Ottawa announced that they were going to, you know, get a whole amazing modern uh, transit system, the just the reaction from Alberta alone, <laughs> you know, I, I can hear I can hear the people I know in Alberta reacting to that news, which is wild. We need it everywhere. But I mean, the death spiral is a thing that's happening in Alberta as well, in many other mid-sized Canadian cities, even in Toronto. It's like there are significant problems with with like transit because people aren't using it as much anymore because it's been overloaded and because it's too expensive and because we haven't dealt with those problems for so long. So I think in general, there's like a need for an injection of funding with like real, a real bold sense of sort of like where cities are going with transit. Otherwise, like right now, we're seeing a situation where people are moving towards people who want to use public transit are moving towards purchasing cars and they're using cars. And that's just going to increase congestion 
and air pollution deaths and all the problems we want to avoid. Yeah, I I think it's a miserable one, but in Ottawa, it's a temporary problem. They will eventually get the problem sorted out with our LRT and eventually it'll start working and eventually it'll be reliable. It's just taking far too long and it's a problem of being too cheap when we started. Short, short-sighted in costs anyway, because I imagine like having to fix these problems is probably not going to be cheaper in the long run. <laughs> Yeah, we all know what it's like to go to the store and you have a choice between different products and one costs more but is better quality. And in the long run, you might be better off with quality. I feel like our leaders are still kind of in denial about where we need to be right now in order to prepare for where we're going to be in like 10, 15 years, which is like not a good place if we don't start acting. What I don't know is whether within the government departments that would plan this kind of thing, They actually have the vision. They have the ideas. They know what needs to be done. I suspect in many cases they do, but trying to persuade the public or politicians and the public to take on new debt and new ideas, it's it's tough. And it's not the bureaucrats' job to do it. It's the politicians' job. And uh, most politicians, a municipal politician, because that's what we're talking about with cities, They all get caught in this, oh, I promise not to raise taxes more than 2.5%. So you just put the shackles on. And of course, they don't have the tax room. They can't take on debt. There's constraints on what they can do because they are creatures of the province. And as a result, you end up there nickel and diming everything. And of course, when the police come in and say they need a higher budget and everyone's saying, yeah, well, I'm scared. So uh, who gets priority? not the green stuff, not the housing. Yeah, that's true. That's a very big problem. I do think that the politics may be starting to shift in some places. Uh, Like the election of um, Olivia Chow in Toronto was really interesting. And yeah, she also did have the tax issues. (laughs) But I think the sort of the mood in the city seemed to be, we've been underfunding housing and transport for so long, nothing works anymore. I'm ready to try something new. So it it may be that that's starting to change a little bit, but there for sure you point to like all the constraints that even a really ambitious mayor would run into as soon as they were elected. Mayors go through cycles. We For a while, we had a mayor who uh, claimed that he was a successful businessman and would run the city like a business. Dismal failure. The city is not a business. Then we had a mayor who came in and said, I will run an efficient municipality and keep taxes low. He did exactly what he promised, absolutely zero vision and uh, very little progress. Now we have a mayor who seems to have a bit more ambition and uh, we wait and see as to where it goes. But uh, he still has the same constraints as every other mayor. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't seem to really have an ambition on transit, though, does he? <laughs> the, the budget cut buses. <laughs> yeah, well, he's. Uh, we'll see where that goes. Let me back up on something. The great cities of the world that you think of, London, it was the great fire of uh, 1666 that destroyed two-thirds of the city. Christopher Wren came back in as the lead architect and planner for the city. They rebuilt, and they rebuilt to create the great city that we now know. They had the same thing in the 1800s. They realized that all of the 
uh, fires in the city were creating a smog. It was covering everything with dirt. They banned that. They built subways. If you look at Paris, uh, 150 years ago, it was the 1860s, 50s, 60s, they decided that the downtown, the old city of Paris, was an absolute disaster, full of disease, poverty, crime. It was everything that they didn't want. They leveled the damn thing and built the city that we now think of heritage Paris. I mean, sometimes it takes dramatic change to rebuild a city. Now, we don't want to have to burn down Toronto or Ottawa, but uh, maybe a little bit more drama wouldn't hurt. Yeah, I mean, and certainly the the current mayor of Paris, um, while not pushed by some kind of major disaster, um, is, I think, um, trying to put forward an ambitious vision in the realm that you're sort of thinking about. So maybe that'll work out and it could be a model for other cities. (laughs) Yes. And when one city does something like that successfully, others will say, you know what, we can learn from that. Yeah, and I think Paris is actually a great example because during the pandemic, they shut down one of the major roadways and turned it into a pedestrian-friendly zone for the locals. And I think they've kept it, right? Like, I think that they've basically, like, rerouted a ton of traffic because it wasn't it wasn't for the locals of that area. It was just people going by. And I think I haven't been there since the pandemic, but I, I've heard that the whole area has been completely revitalized in a way that nobody thought was possible before. So like disasters are awful. And I, I mean, obviously, I would never wish for one, but it's it's amazing the sort of things that people can do when they're when an opportunity to change comes up. I also think it's just sort of like choosing to rally behind a, a vision. It doesn't necessarily need to be like a, a negative shock. Let's take Paris, for example. They're using the upcoming Olympics as sort of like their cornerstone around a new vision for the city. And it's a new green vision that's more walkable. They want people to be able to swim, uh, <laughs> uh, which I think is ambitious. But uh, <laughs> but they're, they're working towards a goal. Um, and I think that really you just need to have sort of like something that unifies people. And providing things that are nice, uh, that people will enjoy and use, I think can be sort of something that does win votes. I don't know. I suppose that remains to be seen. But <laughs> Well, I, I lived in uh, Washington for quite a while. And it the downtown of Washington was like a bigger version of Ottawa. It was dead. At night, you could fire a cannon down the main street and not hit a soul. They built the first a convention center and then the arena that houses the basketball and hockey and all of the major concerts. And it's right on the subway system, the metro. And the downtown was incredibly revitalized. It's a vibrant, fun city now. And it's a, that kind of thing, bringing culture into the city, is also important. Can't be underestimated. In a place like Ottawa, we're wrestling with having our hockey team way out in the suburbs but uh, having facilities that are accessible in a neighborhood where there's restaurants and clubs and uh, vitality, th- that's part of what makes a great city. And it takes planning. Yeah, I think moving the arena is going to be <laughs> going to be nice. <laughs> yeah, we don't we don't want to turn this into the Ottawa podcast, but uh, but it's true. No great city is without some of these major facilities. You're not going to get a Taylor Swift concert if only 3,000 seats in the auditorium. It is like, um, I think Edmonton's a good example, though, of how 
like having those cultural touchstones, it doesn't necessarily always work. Edmonton had a super ambitious plan when they moved their arena into sort of the downtown. The aim was to revitalize the downtown. And for a while it did work, um, but it really seems as though it wasn't maybe resilient enough to to survive through the challenges that we've experienced post-pandemic. And downtown Edmonton, I would say, is worse than than it was before like the, the arena went in. Uh, Kyla, you're there now, so maybe you can... <laughs> You can comment on that, but I haven't visited the arena district. The last time I was there was two years ago, uh, and it was it was absolutely dead uh, because all of my uh, we were I was the pandemic. It was like height. It was like peak pandemic. I was visiting for Thanksgiving, and there was nobody there. My stepdad took me around to give me a tour because he loves he loves the ice district. He thought it was great, but now that I'm back, it's been two years, and I. I mean, I haven't talked to a ton of people about it, but the people that have brought it up, Kristen, are saying the same thing as you, which is that nobody wants to go down there. Yeah, which I think brings us to maybe another theme we can talk about. Um, the like, What do you, do you do about the vacant office buildings downtown? So I don't know, uh, Patrick, if you've got any thoughts on that. <laughs> well, I, I know that architects have looked at them and in Ottawa, they, they're trying to figure out, can you convert these buildings? And some of them lend themselves, the older ones, I think, lend themselves to conversion more easily than the newer office buildings. But uh, to the extent that it's possible, I think Calgary is the Canadian leader in this regard. They've been doing a lot of conversion. What what do you like? What have they been converting? Have they been converting it to housing, or or what sort of things are? Yes, apartments. Taking office buildings and turning them into apartments, where the uh, demand for office space is reduced because since COVID, people are working more from home, and the uh, the way in which offices are working is being modernized and changed. If there is a interesting thing to come out of COVID, it's it's changing the relationship we have to the workplace and uh, we haven't figured it all out yet and I'm speaking for as someone who is retired and don't have to leave the house but uh, I used to even when working for the government would uh, work from home a certain amount because I got a lot done I didn't need to be there I'd go in for the meetings I'd uh, keep in touch deliver product a lot of offices you can do that you can't substitute face to face you know it's 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 better but you don't need it all the time i mean we can you the three of us can have a conversation in different locations using technology it would be more fun if we were actually sitting face to face it's true it's true yeah every time Kristen and i record together it's like a <laughs> it's like a whole <laughs> the energy is very different when we record together the first episode we ever did together was the pets episode i think and we've we still get compliments on that they're like wow like people sometimes can't tell that we're recording in separate spaces because uh like i put it together reasonably well there's not a lot of delays and stuff but plus we've known each other for like what two decades almost? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> <Long time. laughs> yeah so the rapport is already there but like uh sometimes we get our our uh friend robbie on the show and he's been with us for a couple of episodes in person and like yeah the energy is just different it would be better you i absolutely agree <laughs> but as you say it's not absolutely necessary every time that's uh also one of the reasons why in a city like ottawa and i suspect a lot of other places that the transit use is down People can work from home a fair amount of time. And it's uh, all of that puts a squeeze on a city because they need the higher transit 
usage in order to justify to bring in the money to pay for it. And it's a, so it's, it's a dilemma. It's a, in the long run, having the good transit system will pay off. But in the short term, they're still working out the kinks post-COVID. And I mean, that's a problem that Edmonton has always faced is they're like, well, the ridership is low. It's like, well, the system is bad. And so it's this it's like a snake eating its own tail. <laughs> like, how do you get ahead on that? Right. <laughs> I mean, some cities in Europe have been moving in like fits and starts towards free transit models. A lot of them are sort of starting with youth um, and seniors. Um, but the the sort of vision is towards like a user fee free transit system. And then you kind of take that whole dilemma out of it. Now, you still need to find a way to pay for that system. <laughs> but I think it does sort of stop that snake eating its tail problem, if you can find a way to fund it. There is no pixie dust. What? <laughs> That's what you're here to tell us, though. You're here to get you're here with the pixie dust. <laughs> well, I'd say to me, the pixie dust is actually giving the uh, giving major urban cities in particular more legal standing so that they can pull out some new taxes or new sources of revenue, uh, that they could bring in something like a land value tax as opposed to the current system of taxation. That All of that's in the hands of the province. Why should the cities not have some piece of uh, provincial income tax? I mean, there's a bunch of things that you could do that could allow cities a little more stable planning and a little bit more long-term planning. It's frustrating even for small things. Like in Vancouver, it's almost impossible to find a place to rent that allows pets, right? And it's it's such an issue that the city of Vancouver wants to change. Like they've been pushing to change this, but that also falls under the jurisdiction of the province. And even though most of the people in British Columbia live on on the coast, it, it's still, for whatever reason, just getting blocked and blocked and blocked that, like, there's no pet allowances that can go through despite the city pushing for it, despite the city being one of the most powerful, like, places to be in the province. But, I mean, these are things that the provincial government could choose to care about, too, right? Uh <laughs> Yeah, it'd probably be easier if cities had powers to themselves because everybody living in a city understands the city's problems. But there are some things like funding public transit um, and like having tenant protections that would probably benefit from being province wide, I think. Or even national. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody loves Ottawa, but there are some things that it would be easier if uh, if we had national standards for certain things like construction industry and we do for food safety why not for other things our whole uh, healthcare system it is very difficult for a city to plan its healthcare where are they going to put hospitals how are they going to manage all the various things that go into an efficient healthcare system when the province controls it the federal government doles out money and tries to uh, control the puppet strings the city where the rubber hits the road, this is the city is, in my view, the urban municipality is, in my view, the single most important level of government when it comes to the daily lives of people. It is the one that controls all of the roads and the water and the sewage and the hospitals and the schools and all those things. And yet, in many of these areas, they simply don't have adequate authority to make logical decisions that can solve long-term problems. And yet it is the one level of government 
that affects us every day the moment you walk out the door. I think there's also sort of like a challenge for, I mean, we've been mostly talking about big and medium-sized cities in this um, episode, but small cities have like an additional challenge of having to do a lot of the same planning things that large cities do, but with much less sort of like government capacity. So I don't know if you've if you've thought about that and have any sort of like views, ideas. <laughs> it's much the same thing, except on a smaller scale. Now, I, I was in the... Uh, um, Councillor in uh, the township of North Grenville when it was amalgamated and we were being sworn in when the ice storm hit. We couldn't even finish uh, establishing legal authorities for the uh, for the for bank accounts. But the people who preceded me were actually extremely smart about some of the things they did. They needed in the town of Kempville to build a water sewage treatment plant. They built one that was twice the size that they needed because they knew that in 30 years down the road, they'd need that. They saved an enormous amount of money in the long term, but it really hurt them in the short term because it cost a lot of money. And uh, there's things like that, that small townships, large townships, they all face that same squeeze. The ability to do long-term planning is is really difficult in our current system as well. I, I don't know, talking about all of this, like it makes me sort of like understand why free market proponents are like, oh, just privatize everything. Make someone else think about it. <laughs> <laughs> Even though, to be clear, I am not on, <laughs> I am, don't privatize our healthcare. This is, uh, again, back to this small township of North Granville. We had the water and sewage system. But the developers at the fringe of town would all want to simply go for the half-acre lots and have uh, septic fields and, and wells because it was a lot cheaper to build and they could sell houses and everyone would have a nice big yard for their kids to play in and put up the structures, the slides. The trouble was, after those developments had been there for 20 or 30 years and the wells are started, they were starting to drink what they would call their own sweet water. The wells, the septic tanks were bleeding into the well, and all of a sudden, they were drinking their own sewage. And we then had to say, okay, you're going to come onto the city system, but it's going to drive up the cost of every single house by $30,000 because you're going to have to pay for this. And oh, the out, the outrage. And a lot of people said, well, wait, hold on. Don't tell anyone yet because I'm moving out. They didn't want to have to pay this before they moved out of the neighborhood. It was, it was classic. But now we've basically forced a lot of the new developments that did not want it to patch into the water, the municipal systems. And in the long run, it pays off. In the long run, everyone's better off. It's been really interesting talking with you about this. And then the moment you invited me to join you on this conversation, it started my brain thinking about some of this stuff. Because as I said earlier, this whole notion of cities civilization, civic responsibilities, uh, citizenship, all of this, they all tie together. The root of those words is all the same. It really does encapsulate how we live, where we live, what makes civilization great, and where we have to go in the future in a time of climate crisis. And it's so it's a fascinating window into the bigger problem. And so thank you for uh, sharing it with me. 
Yeah, no, thank you for joining us. You have such a wealth of knowledge and experience. So it made for a very interesting conversation. A lot of things to touch on. I mean, we didn't even talk about the Roman Empire. (laughs) (laughs) I really appreciate you you guys both uh, humoring me on this. I love cities. I love thinking about urban planning. You're welcome and thank you. (laughs) 